thank you for being with us this morning. Um, last week, we finished up our series that we've been in for a couple of weeks that was called, um, we called it, What Do You Want First? The Good News or the Good News? Um, and I think that's a really cool title, and uh, we were talking about the good news. Um, this morning, we're starting our new series, which is going to be simply entitled Romans. It's about the book of Romans. We like simplicity around here, in case you haven't gotten that vibe yet. Um, but the book of Romans is not exactly simple. And so that's why we're going to be doing what is called um, an expositional series through the book. Now, the series that we usually do at Simple Church are uh, what you might call a topical series, which is where we take a, a theme in Scripture or an idea or um, even maybe a person in Scripture, and then we see what Scripture has to say about that. Um, you know, is it good or bad? How are we to respond to it as Christians? How does the world look at it? How does God see it, and what does he say about it? But an expositional series is a little bit different in that you take the Bible, or in this case, a book of the Bible um, being Romans, and you just go through it verse by verse. And so there's nothing wrong with a topical series. It's a, it's a perfectly good thing. But like anything else that God created that is good, we tend to try to turn that into something that is not good for our own gain. And so what a topical series um, unfortunately, we can easily turn it into is something where we come in on Sunday mornings looking for an experience, looking for our Jesus fix for the week, if you will. We feel really good and inspired, and then we walk out the door, and our Bible sits in our back seat until next Sunday. An expositional series, if you come in here looking for that for the next several Sundays, you will leave disappointed because this is kind of like a puzzle. And every Sunday, God is gonna give us another piece or maybe a couple of pieces to that puzzle, but it's not gonna be finished and we're not gonna know what it looks like until the puzzle is finished. So hopefully what will happen, what is the goal for us is that every Sunday we will leave knowing a little bit more about God than we did when we walked in, but we will be yearning for more. We'll be jumping, at the bit to get to the next thing, to get to, to putting the picture together more. And so the book of Romans, if you know anything about it, you know, you can ask people about Romans and they'll say, oh, well, Romans is about the gospel. It's the gospel book. This is where Paul lays it out so clearly, especially Romans 8. And that's true, but there's a lot to it because it's very deep it's very complex, and if you don't understand the context of the book, you don't understand what Paul is trying to say or the audience that he's um, writing to, it'll seem kind of reckless. It'll kind of seem like Paul finishes writing a section, and then he's like, okay, what's my next idea? And then he writes that down, and he just jumps back and forth. But it's very, very intentional and strategic, and we'll see that even today as we start off. And so what we see throughout the book of Romans is that the first 11 chapters are about what we believe. Exactly what is the gospel? Paul explains that out very, very, very uh, directly and very intentionally. And then um, verses 12 through 16, that, or I'm sorry, chapters 12 through 16, the end of the book, he explains, okay, if we've got that right and we really believe it, then what should our lives look like? What is the response that can only come from believing the true gospel? So every Sunday, we're going to see some of these key themes 
as we go. You may not see every one of these themes, but sometimes you might, and you'll at least see most of them. So I want you to, if you're taking notes, write this down, and I would encourage you, if, if you continue to take notes, every Sunday, whatever page you're taking notes on, write this at the top of your notes so that this is fresh on your mind and you can see this. Paul will deal with sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. Okay, let me say those again. Sin, salvation, sanctification, which is the process of God's children being made holy, being made more like Christ, second by second, day by day. We never become perfect, but part of being a Christian is that if you are truly a Christian, over the course of your life, he will make you more like Christ. That is sanctification. It is a purification process. Sovereignty, God's control over everything in our lives, good or bad, not only knowing what will happen, but having predetermined and preplanned and, and, and actively put into place what is happening and what will happen. And then service, that's our fifth one, okay? And so before we start the book, I talked about it's, it's important for us to understand the context or else we won't get it. And that goes for every book of the Bible. A lot of times when we miss things, it's because we read it like it's, like it's a fairy tale. We read it like it's, you know, one of these old Disney movies. But it's not. I mean, okay, touch your arm right now. If you're in shorts, touch your leg or your face. I don't care. I'm not going to judge you. But touch skin somewhere. Paul was just as much flesh and blood as you and me are. The people he, were writing, the people he was writing to were just as much flesh and blood as you and I are. Okay, this is not a fairy tale. This, this was real. It was written to real people in a real time for a real purpose. And so we need to know the context. You know, you've heard it, I'm sure, in school, who, what, where, when, where, okay? Or who, what, where, when, why, sorry. Okay, that's our context. So Romans was written by Paul around AD 57, okay? Give you a, a reference. Jesus had died around 20 years earlier. So... The church, I think you could say, is fairly new at this point. And Romans is, or, or Paul is writing to the believers in Rome, the city of Rome, as they are building their church. Now, the city of Rome had just over one million people at the time. That doesn't sound like a lot to us today, but at that time, it would have made it easily one of the three or four biggest cities in the world, the known world. And it had around 50,000 Jews, which was a huge Jewish population, even for a city that large. And many of those Jews were Christian, um, you know, Christian Jews, Jews that believed in the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They weren't just ethnic Jews. And they were growing rapidly, and that made the people of Rome very uncomfortable. Um, Rome was the, the center of entertainment, society, religion, politics, um, in the Roman Empire, the known world at that time, it's almost like, um, I guess our equivalent in America would be like if you combined uh, Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., that kind of culture, you would get Rome. That's what it was. Um, like any city anywhere, it was a very immoral city. There were lots of things going on that shouldn't have. And many people, scholars today, will try to argue it was even more immoral than any city we have now, if you could believe that. I mean, they had... Um, regular, what they would consider normal sexual practices in Rome that even today we would consider to be kind of weird. 
I mean, our, our, our secular culture would be like, okay, that's a little bit too far for me. Um, there was a Roman historian, and I had his name, but now I'm blanking on it. But, I mean, he, he lived in Rome his whole life. That was his hometown. And um, he claimed that Rome was the cesspool of all humanity and society. That was where these, these Roman Christians lived. Rome was a pagan city. It was mainly polytheistic, meaning they worship many gods. And they, they were pretty religiously tolerant. They really only had two rules. And the first was that you worshiped the emperor, which is why so many people were polytheistic because it allowed them to worship their normal gods. And then they would kind of throw the emperor in at the end and be like, yeah, we worship him. And then everything was cool. Everybody got along. And then the second rule that they had was that your beliefs could not interfere with someone else's beliefs. You know, if you're gods that you worship told you to go and kill your neighbor, okay, even in Rome, you can't do that, right? Well, this created a huge problem between the Christians and the citizens of Rome because Christianity was, first of all, fairly new and growing rapidly, even amongst a, a, a small amount of persecution at this time. But it was really the only religion in, in existence that they knew of that said that their God was the only God and was therefore the only one that could be worshiped and so they could not worship the emperor. That created tons of issues. And so for that reason, the Christians in Rome were not appreciated. On their best day, they were considered kind of an irritation and a nuisance and on their, their worst days, they were kind of considered waste and were dealt with like waste. And like I said just a second ago, they were dealing with a, a, a still somewhat small, relatively small, but growing level of persecution, which in the next 10 years or so under the, the rule of Emperor Nero would completely skyrocket. Nero, um, there was a, a great fire in Rome. It's called the Great Fire of Rome um, of AD 64. And um, there's many theories of how the fire got started, but Nero blamed the Christians of the city and so people would go out in the city and find Christians and just behead them out in the streets. They would impale them. They would, um, there, there was even stories of Nero taking Christians and tying them to a stake and lining them around his garden and covering them with wax. And at night, he would set them on fire to act as lamps in his garden. And because of the wax, it would take several hours, even sometimes over the course of a day, for the fire to completely consume them. kind of different than the persecution we have here where our biggest fear is someone saying no, right? But there were still some similarities from what they dealt with and what we deal with. And so that's what we need to understand is that's the conditions that Paul is writing to in Rome. And Paul had never been to Rome at this point. We will actually see next week in what we cover that Paul was trying to get to Rome and so far had not made it. He was hindered from getting there. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're actually only going to cover the first seven verses of chapter one, but they are so deep. We need to get this, okay? So I want us to follow the logic of how Paul lays things out, okay? So what I'm going to do first is I'm just going to read these first seven verses, and then we'll go through them. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts off, all he says is Paul. Okay, so when we write a letter to, well, I don't guess anyone writes letters. When we write an email, if anybody still uses that, right, we always put dear so-and-so or even more generally to whom it may concern at the top. And at the bottom, we put sincerely or in best regards or truly yours, something like that, you know, Jameson Thacker, whoever's writing the letter, the email, whatever. Okay, so we put who we're addressing at the top, we put ourselves at the bottom. In this day, that wasn't very practical because obviously, you know, they had scrolls that they wrote on, okay? And when they would read the scrolls, they would open it just a little bit. And as they would read, they would open it more. So if, if whoever was writing put their name at the bottom, then whoever was reading would have to unwind the entire scroll, see who it was from, and then wind it back. So it wasn't very practical to put their name at the end. They would always put their name at the front. So he just identifies himself because again, he's never been there. But they still probably wouldn't have known a lot about him. They would have probably heard about him some, but they wouldn't have known him like the other churches might have when he started those churches or planted them or or met the people there. And chances are what they knew most about him was the stories of his life as Saul who was persecuting the church. And so it wouldn't have been enough to just say Paul and then go into his point. He would have needed to give them a reason to believe what he was saying and actually be able to trust him now. Because you know, when you see somebody kill your neighbor, you probably don't wanna listen to much they have to say. So he gives them a reason. He says, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now this word servant, the Greek word is doulos. And that word comes from the Hebrew word that is the same Hebrew word used in the Old Testament that was translated servant or sometimes bond servant or even slave. But it wasn't slavery as we think of slavery now. It wasn't the, the, the negative connotation, the atrocity that was American slavery. It was, it was more like this. So slavery back then was to pay off a debt. So you owed a debt to someone, you would work for them to pay off that debt, but you would work for them for six years and then the Mosaic law, which is the law God gave for the children of Israel to follow through Moses, had this statement in there where on the seventh year, Whoever was working for you to pay off a debt, you would release them and their debt would be canceled, whatever was left. But sometimes you might have a a master who treated their servant so well with such great respect and their master was such an honorable person that they would come to them on the seventh year and say, I don't wanna leave, I wanna stay with you. And so there was a, a, a clause in the Mosaic law that allowed that to happen. And so the master would take the servant and would pierce their ear. And so whenever that servant would go out in public or to the market or anything like that, people would see that and go, oh, they're a servant of, you know, so-and-so. And it was this, this willing, um, almost this, this willingness to serve this person because of how well they had treated you and because of 
how honorable they were. And it was essentially giving up your identity, your aspirations, your ability to own your own land and work your own land to say, I'm gonna give up my life to this servant because of what they've done for me. So sometimes I think we probably would read this verse, a servant of Christ Jesus, and almost kind of treat it like Paul's acting how we would act, like I'm doing this because I have to and it's my job and I don't have a choice. But that's not what Paul's doing at all. He's saying, I willingly gave up my life for this purpose, for this master. I find my identity in him and that's by my choice. So he's identified himself and then he says, called to be an apostle. Apostle means one sent forth in authority. So now he is Christ's servant, he's serving Christ by being his apostle, his one sent forth in authority. So he has now not only stated his identity, he has stated his purpose. And in the kingdom of God, if we are truly his children, we have a purpose in his kingdom. What's your purpose? I didn't ask what's your occupation right? Like I'm, I'm in school right now and I'm so ready to be done, but I'm in school and I'm getting a degree in secondary education. I'm going to be a high school teacher. Okay. That's my occupation. That's not my purpose though. Now, if I were to say that I feel like my purpose is to touch the lives of young kids and to show them the love and the hope of Jesus Christ simply by being around them and helping them learn every day. Okay. That would be a purpose. And I think so many of us walk around every day and we love Jesus and we claim to be servants, but we don't know what our purpose is. And we probably don't really pray about it that much either. The world will try to tell us that our purpose is about us. And it's very subtle. It's all of these really um, cliches, you know, don't accept less than the love you deserve. Or um, if someone doesn't respect you the way you deserve to be respected, you know, you don't need that person in your life. I'm really glad God didn't act that way because I'd be in a little bit of trouble. But the world tends to try to tell us that our purpose is about us. But I would argue that Matthew 16, 24 says something different when it tells us to deny ourselves and take up our cross. It tells us to be like Jesus in taking up our cross. Now think about it. Jesus did a lot of things. It could have told us to, to deny ourselves and be like Jesus in walking on water or healing people or knowing the scripture as well as he did and being really smart and wise. No, it told us to be like Jesus by taking up our cross. We are to be like him in our suffering. It's interesting that it was worded that way. And if you believe that scripture is what it says it is, then nothing is in scripture by accident. It's not random. And so this desire we have to live for ourselves is a daily struggle. This desire we have to make our purpose about us is a daily struggle. But what Paul is trying to get to us is that our purpose is not about us. It is about Christ. So he said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. He stated who he is, his identity, his purpose. But now he says, set apart for the gospel of God. 
If you paid attention to the five themes and you're, you've kind of been running over those in your mind, you would have gotten one just then. You would have gotten over the sovereignty of God when he says, set apart for the gospel of God. This is a passive verb to Paul. He is not saying, I set myself apart or I made myself apart. He was saying, I was set. Like when, you, when I pick up this paper and put it back down, the paper didn't do anything. I picked it up. The verb was passive to the paper. I was the one doing the action. That's what Paul is saying. So he's not only saying, I'm a servant and here's my purpose, but he's saying it wasn't my choice. Because again, we would love to make it about us. I was the one who chose to do this wonderful thing for God. No, what Paul says in other books is that when it was his choice, he was going around killing people. God had a specific plan in mind. And then later in the book, in Romans 9, and this won't be on the screen, I just want to read these two verses to you. He kind of goes back to this again. He says in verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Maybe you've never seen somebody making pottery out of clay or anything like that, but you could still imagine it. And if you, if you have seen it, then you know this, but I bet you've never seen someone making pottery and they grab a, a lump of clay and then the clay says, nope, I don't want to be this bowl, and jumps out of their hands and runs away. If the molder wants it to be a bowl, it's going to be a bowl. Whatever the molder wants it to be, it will be. The clay has no choice. That's what Paul wants to get across. Again, so that he, and therefore us, cannot boast of anything. So, now that we've finished verse 1... We will continue. I promise we'll be done before dinner, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, this is pretty straightforward. Any good Jew or even Gentile living around Rome or in the Roman Empire would have known of some of the Old Testament prophecies and things like that, and especially that of the coming Messiah, the Christ. And Paul is trying to tell them, okay, look, I've identified who I am why I'm trustworthy, why you can listen. Now, here's what I have to say. These Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, they've been fulfilled. They're already here. You're not waiting anymore. Okay, well, how have they been fulfilled? In what? And then he says, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh. Now, it's talking about the gospel of God, which it says at the end of verse one, and then it, it says that statement, uh, which he promised before and through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. So it's the gospel concerning his son. And that word concerning, the way we pronounce the Greek word is peri, or some say peri, but it's P-E-R-I. And this word has been carried over into English and is a prefix for some words that we have. And, and one great word so that we can kind of get the meaning of this is Periscope. Now, you may not know what that is, especially like if you're in my youth, you probably don't know. But Periscope, if you've ever seen maybe documentaries or even movies from like the, the World War II era, World War I era, the submarines would have this thing that you could, you could look through. You know, you put your hand on the handles and you look through it and you could turn 360 degrees all the way around and you could see in every direction of the submarine. There's a Periscope. And that word peri 
means surrounding or around. So what he's saying when he says concerning his son is that the gospel is 360 degrees all the way around about Jesus. But again, we don't really make it about that, do we? Even when we talk about the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, we, t- we, we end by saying this, Christ died to save us, and that's our end. Okay, that's true. That's, that's one of the things that happened because he died, but he died to save us because he was glorified through our saving. It again goes back to him. If we stop with us, we've cut it short and therefore made it something other than the gospel. It begins and ends 360 degrees all the way around with Jesus Christ. It's what Paul is getting at. And so he says, concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh. Now, there were many prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, but most people, the, the one that most people, especially in Israel, would have hung their hat on was the, the prophecies about the Messiah being from the bloodline of David. This was in 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 132, and I believe Isaiah 11. And they would have known this because David was somewhat of, of a legend in that time. I mean, um, you know, I, one of my favorite movies is The Sandlot, and it's a baseball movie. But they're talking about Babe Ruth in the movie, and at one point they say that Babe Ruth was less than a god but more than a man. That was kind of how they saw David. I mean, David was this boy who was nothing but a lowly shepherd boy, and then he, he took down Goliath with nothing but a, a stone and a sling. And at that time, Goliath was the most undefeatable thing anybody had ever seen. And then he becomes this king and this warrior that's ferocious and he leads Israel into prosperity. And so they would have been waiting for the coming Messiah because he was from the bloodline of David to have been just like that. So to tell them that Jesus, who the the Bible kind of tells us probably had somewhat of a lowly appearance, he probably would have been not someone you would have looked at and thought of him as a king or a warrior or anything like that to believe that he was the coming Messiah from the bloodline of David would have been a little bit difficult for them to buy into. But that's ex- exactly why the book of Matthew actually starts out with a genealogy to show us, nope, it's him. It may not seem like it to you, but it's him. And that's what Paul's saying right here. He's from the bloodline. Check it. This really is the Messiah. Okay, so we get it. Jesus is the Messiah. Now what? Verse four, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How do we know that? By what? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The death and the resurrection sealed the deal. The fate of you and me and sin and death and Satan was sealed when Jesus opened his eyes and walked out of the tomb. That is what makes him who he says he is. That is the gospel. And so now that we know who Jesus is, why he's legit, he is who he says he is, what has he done? What does it matter who he says he is? Why does that matter to us? through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith 
for the sake of his name among all the nations. We've already talked about what an apostle is, one sent forth in authority. So apostleship, that same concept. But then grace. Grace is what I love to call a Christianese word. Because we say it a lot, it sounds really good. It even sounds kind of good flowing off the tongue. You know, grace, it's a really cool word. But if I, if I, if I pulled you one-on-one and I said, give me the definition of grace right now, go. A lot of you would probably kind of tense up and stand there and try to look at your phone while I'm not looking. Or if you knew, some of you might know, but it would kind of be like the great value definition of the word but we need to know what it means. And it's actually very simple. Grace is unmerited or unearned or undeserved favor. Anytime in scripture, when you see grace, it is unmerited favor. That's what it means. So when he says we have received grace, unmerited favor, and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So we have that unmerited favor and we have been sent forth in authority because of that unmerited favor We've been sent forth to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. That term sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Obedience of faith. Okay, what does that mean? There's different types of obedience. There's obedience by instruction. You know, this is your homework. Do it. Do this paperwork in this way. File it in this way. You do it. Then there's obedience by laws. I was about to use speed limit, but that's a terrible one. Um... You know, don't, don't steal stuff, don't shoot somebody, you know, laws. We listen to those because there's bad things that happen if we don't follow the law. And then there's, there's fear and intimidation. This is what dictators do. If you don't do this, I'll kill you. And if you do, I still might kill you, but I'll wait a while, you know. Fear, intimidation. But this is not that. All of those are dependent upon the flesh. But faith of or obedience of faith is not dependent upon the flesh. So how do we do that? Like seriously, if it's not dependent upon action, then how do we do it? How do we act upon it? What is it? Romans 6 helps us understand this answer. And these are just two verses I'll read for you. Starting in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus let sin therefore reign, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That word consider, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin, can also be translated reckon or render or believe yourselves dead to sin. So this creates kind of an interesting dynamic if it says that we are dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. It creates this dynamic that offends us in our nature. It offended me a couple of days ago when I was preparing for this and it will most likely offend you, but this is what the Bible says. In Romans 14, 23, it says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let me help you understand what that means. If we leave here today and I see a wreck on I-20 and a car has flipped over and the car is smoking and something bad's about to happen and there's people trapped in the car and I jump the fence over here and I go and I pull them out of the car and save their life. But let's say I'm not a Christian. I do not have a relationship with Jesus and therefore not doing what I do out of faith. 
What I just did saved their life, but it was sin. I hope that just offended you. It offended me. I don't like that. I, ju I just saved their life. How are you going to tell me it's sin? Well, it's not done out of faith. The God of the universe, if he is who he says he is, and is worthy of all praise and glory of honor of all of creation every second, if anything is done that we would consider good or bad that is not done for his glory, how is it not sin? Answer me that question. It may be good. We saved somebody's life, but it wasn't for the glory of God. I'm not telling you not to save people's life. Please don't. There's some of y'all that are nurses and doctors in here, so I'm gonna come see you eventually. Save my life. Just do it out of faith. Okay? So when the Bible talks about us being slaves to sin, what that means is that though we are responsible for our sin because of our sin nature, we have a responsibility to it. Because I love it when people say, I wish I were in the garden because I wouldn't have done the same thing. Stop, chill, okay? I know I would have. We all would have because we all have the same nature that Adam and Eve have. We have that sin nature. So we're responsible for it, but we really don't have a choice outside of Jesus but to sin. There's no option. When you're in bondage, right, when you're in chains, you can only do what the chains let you do. Well, when the chains paralyze you as sin does, what can you do? You're in that sin. That's it. But, okay, reverse that. So we are now dead to sin and alive to God. So we're not slaves to that sin anymore. But what that means is that when we sin, it's now our direct conscious choice. We sinned because in that moment, we loved our sin and we wanted to appease and satisfy that feeling, that emotion, that desire, whatever it was, more than we wanted to satisfy God. Our obedience and our sin is our choice because of the freedom that Christ has given us. And so then he comes, verses six and seven, and says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Again, there's that sovereignty, are called to belong. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the situation that the Romans were in that we explained earlier. Okay, obviously, I think the persecution, at least here in America, that we face is not quite comparable to what they were facing, but it is around the world. And even then, there's still some elements that we get. Feeling isolated from the world, feeling like you don't belong here, like you're aliens in your own culture and society, because everything that you believe is, is not only disagreed with, but it's almost seen as this grotesque, disgusting, offensive thing. We kind of understand that, don't we? I do. Paul says that Christ died for our freedom. He died to give us the hope that over overcomes the world and our circumstances. And so what that means is so simple, 
but it's so overlooked. We overlook it and we, and we don't live in it so often. We live through following obedience of the flesh. Let me do this. Let me do that. And we're trying to, to gain points, if you will. We're, we're trying to make ourselves look better and, and, and uh, be more appealing to God, right? But when he says obedience of faith, Paul is setting us free from that. Because what he's trying to get us out of is this mindset that our service to God are the roots that produce the fruit of his promise. So if we serve as we should, he will then give us the promise. But Paul is saying it's actually the opposite. He gave us the promise. He gave us the grace that we could never earn or deserve. And if we truly believe that and have faith as we should, then our obedience will be so natural. And it will not be from this place of bondage like we're trying to earn our way out of debt, but rather it will be because we know we can never pay our debt, but he's paid it anyways. It will be a free servanthood of Christ. That's what obedience of faith is. It's not bondage. It's not slavery as we think of it. It's freedom to serve God knowing that he's done everything we could not do. And that's how Paul starts off his letter to the Romans. That's the first hope that he's given. And that's the hope that we have to live in because otherwise we're still living like we're dead to our sin or like we're enslaved to our sin rather than we're dead to God. But he tells us the opposite. We have the choice today to live in the obedience of faith and not the obedience that enslaves us of the flesh. Father, thank you so much for your word, for this letter that you directed Paul to write to the Christians in Rome that is still applicable to us today and we can still take from it and we can learn more about your character and if we believe in that character, what that character should make us look like. I pray this morning that we would learn how to be servants through obedience of faith and not obedience of, of the flesh, which could never allow us to live up to any standard. But, but rather when we live by obedience of faith, we know that we could never meet the standard, but Jesus died and met the standard for us and we now share in his reward. Again, we don't understand it. We wouldn't do it that way if we were in charge, but. That's why we're so thankful that you're not us and you don't think like us and your ways are higher than our ways. Help us to understand and live in the obedience of faith and the freedom that that gives us every day. Thank you for your son who made that freedom possible. In your name we pray, amen.